This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Kia ora. You're listening to The Locals on 89.0 Free FM. We've had some pretty smart cookies from the area. The late Norman Alexander set up universities, and we even have the Te Aumotu Space Centre. One of those people that really stands out is today's guest, who took a passion for volcanology and has since travelled around the world learning and then teaching the rest of us about the subject. And as you'll hear, it's more than just volcanoes and lava. So let's crack into it. This is The Locals, and this is Dr. Janine Kripna. There's a whole, I suppose, environment under the surface, and it's you know intertwined with a whole heap of, of different things. Can you give us a bit of a, a glimpse of that environment under the ground? So the volcano at the top is actually the smallest part of the system. That's the pretty part. That's the part we can ski down and the part that we can stand and watch the lava coming out of. But that lava could have originated from tens or hundreds of kilometres below the crust. And as that lava is moving up slowly, it can stall, it can, um, the different crystals are forming as it's going, the pressure is changing, once you get it shallow enough, gas starts coming out of it. Not all magma erupts. In fact, any granite countertop you've ever seen, or sometimes buildings made of granite, that's lava that never erupted. Magma, sorry, it's magma below the surface, by the way. <laughs> um, so knowing what it's doing and where, like every volcano is different, like us, they all have their own personalities and mood swings. And then putting all of that together is enormous. And those systems, they're all different. It depends on, you know, the tectonic setting. So here in the North Island, we're at a subduction zone. South Island is in a different tectonic setting. Um, where you are in that matters. So we have Taranaki, which is in a completely different setting to the Auckland volcanic field. Um, but that's why we have this field of people who are looking at all different parts of that. So, yeah, the, the volcano at the surface is the tiny part. As the magma is moving through the crust, it doesn't just move up as some bubble of hot sticky lava, um, it's moving up mostly solid with crystals, we call it a, a, a lava crystal mush and then you've got to get enough melt accumulating in these pockets big enough to erupt so it's it's really hard to summarise that in a couple sentences and I'm doing a horrible job but I hope that gives an idea of the complexity of these <laughs> enormous systems and it takes a lot of expertise, a lot of time, a lot of people, a lot of collaboration and a lot of improving technology to understand what may happen. The important thing is that you said it with confidence <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm sold on it. Underground sounds great. You're someone from Te Aumutu, um, and one day you decided you'd become a volcanologist. Can you please tell me how, you know, a, a kid at Te Aumutu College comes to that conclusion? Yeah, it was, it was more the conclusion came to me, really. I was sitting in geography class. I was around 13 years old. And we were learning about volcanoes. And my teacher wrote volcanologist on the board. 
and said that that was a scientist who studies volcanoes. And it, I sat back in my chair and I thought, oh my God, that's, that's, that's what I am. Those are the words, that's what I am. I always loved volcanoes, but that was the moment I realized this was actually something I could be and do for the rest of my life. And that was over 20 years ago, and my dream is still basically the same as it was then. Uh, it, it takes a bit of work uh, in the sort of the, the aughts to actually take those first steps. You went off to Waikato University, I presume, just down the road. Um, was there a large cohort of volcanology students or was it just plucky you up against the the world or the tectonic plates I guess god that was low I'm sorry that was low oh, I love it I love that it <laughs> um there I mean once you get to around master's level so three years doing a bachelor's degree and then two years doing a master's degree there were two of us in my year who ended up really studying volcanoes. Um, so once you go further and further on, the numbers really start to dwindle because it's you know it's not easy getting these degrees. It's a huge commitment. I spent ten years in university, um, and then a lot of experience over that. So yeah, we're actually a pretty small field around the world, but a very dedicated one. Why did you do your masters on Narahoe? Oh, I fell in love with that volcano when I was a kid. When, you know, you go on the family road trips down there to see the, the snow, and I just, I couldn't keep my eyes off it. I'd just be staring at Narahoe, all of them really, but especially that one I felt really drawn to. And then an opportunity came up. We went down to GNS, and they were talking about potential projects for us. And I was like, that's the one I'm doing. In the, in the crater at the summit is the one I'm doing, and I fought for it. And that ended up being my dream research. And what did you actually research? So the rocks that volcanic eruptions leave behind give us clues to not only how the volcano erupted, but also what the magma was doing below the surface. So I was looking at the rocks that were produced in the last two eruptions that were in the 70s and the 50s. And I was looking at the chemistry of the rocks, the crystals that make up the rocks, um, the shape of the bubbles that the gas leaves behind as that comes out during the eruption, and putting all of that together to look at the story of when the magma was actually forming all the way through to the eruption. So it was really the, the life birth cycle of a volcano, if you want to use that, even though I can't stand it when people say volcanoes are born, and I just did that. <laughs> You'd then go on to Australia, obviously you had your Masters, then you'd go on to what, the University of Pittsburgh, get your doctorate. What area of volcanology did you end up specialising in? Um, the most dangerous part, uh, the, the pyroclastic flows. Uh, those are the searing hot, extremely fast waves, basically clouds of hot rock and volcanic gas that race down volcanoes and destroy everything in their path. So sort of Pompeii? Yes, exactly. Yep. What happened at Pompeii? What de de devastated that area? Um, and I wanted to do that because not only am I very passionate about volcanoes, but I'm very passionate about people and helping people. And so if you want to help people, in my mind, I was like, well, let's go to the most dangerous part and start from there. And what was it like going to the most dangerous park, uh, part? I saw, you know, St. Helens, uh, Russia, just in general. Oh, wow, it's... Mount St. Helens, and it's it's hard to explain the feeling going to a volcano where the thing you're studying has actually killed people. It's it's heartbreaking, um, and and then you meet the families 
and the friends of people who died. And it, it really brings that home of we're on this beautiful planet and volcanoes are a very important part of it, very important part of multiple cycles. But we, we really have to know as much as we can about these systems and then communicate it and work with people, which is probably the hardest part in some sometimes to get people out of the way when this stuff happens. So it's the awe of the volcanoes, the amazing, incredible processes, the scale of these things are enormous. They're absolutely enormous and it makes you feel so small. But it also adds that passion and drive to we can do better. We can really help people. We can make a difference one small step at a time. Uh, so how are you making that difference one small step at a time? Uh, it's always hard to actually feel like you are. <laughs> um, but uh, at the moment, you know, every tiny bit of research that we do, whether it's studying the tiniest crystal in a rock, whether it's studying the pressure systems under which the magma forms, whether it's studying the volcanic ash, which is pulverized rock, how that affects croplands, it's all one tiny piece of a puzzle. And all of that goes to helping communities. So it's really this field of all working together. We all get together at conferences and share our research and discuss things and come up with new problems to solve. But it's also the people side. It's the communication. So it's, you know, we don't dumb down science. I can't stand that term. It's not dumb. We're all our specialists in our own areas of life. It's translating it into a way that people can connect with it and understand it and then do something with it. And in some case, some cases, many cases sometimes, that's people making life or death decisions on whether to evacuate. So on top of all of this, um, you end up with the Smithsonian, which I think us here in New Zealand sort of probably don't have a sort of a, 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 an understanding of how expansive of a, of a network of an institution that it is. Can you give me a bit of a... a, a, a I suppose, an info dump on that. Yeah, this, this Smithsonian is incredible. And I've been working with them for, oh, goodness, two maybe two years now? I'm not actually sure. I mean, <laughs> what is time after 2020, right? Yeah. Um, but the Smithsonian is a network of museums. Uh, there's a bunch of them in Washington, D.C., but it's all, there's also a lot of research that goes on behind the scenes, whether it's working on Egyptian mummies, whether it's working on rockets that have been into space, whether it's working on African-American history. Um, and I'm in the Natural History Museum. So people in that museum work on everything from uh, dinosaurs. Uh, there is a small exhibit on animal poop. Um, there are the anthropology or the archaeology, so the human history. And then there are the gem and minerals, which are the gorgeous, beautiful minerals that we all love to see, and also volcanoes and earthquakes and things like that. So within the Smithsonian, enormous, um, it's basically a city of people, is the Global Volcanism Program. And that's where I am. And can you tell me about the Global Volcanism Program? Yeah, so it's really a service-based uh, small group of us where we track volcanic activity around the world. We, um, we don't, we're not monitoring the volcanoes like that's volcano observatories do that, but we take all the information. So I look at satellite data. Um, part of my PhD was using remote sensing or information captured by satellites. Um, official reports, we talk to other experts, we capture everything about these eruptions and we catalog it and we save it. We're also, we've got the Global, Global Volcanism Program or GVP, if it's okay for me to use an acronym. 
uh, website, which is the largest online database where anyone can go and look at the eruption history of a specific volcano, um, look at photos of different processes to understand what a pyroclastic flow is, what volcanic ash is, um, to look up a volcano if there's any kind of activity going on in the news, but it's also, you can see just how much eruption activity is going on around the world. So it's, it's, it's sort of a network as well. We work with a lot of other volcanologists around the world, and it's incredible. I actually turned up there and worked for free for a while because of the United States visa constraints and uh, there being very few jobs in my field. So I rocked up and asked if I could work for free, and funnily enough, they said yes. And then they hired me, and I'm still working there remotely. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, when you look at the, the sector now, compared to when you first took those tentative steps back in the day, um, how do you feel about, the, I suppose, the, the, the accessibility of information um, and the, the, the opportunities that come from it? Oh, wow. It's social media and the internet has really opened it up as well as 24-hour news cycles. Um, you know, it's not just you don't have a couple of news channels or episodes a day now. There is 24-hour news online. And that's created many opportunities but also many, many dangerous problems. And we can see that uh, currently with the La Palma mega tsunami rumours that are flying around the world and that have a lot of people genuinely terrified. So it's our duty, I believe, as scientists, no matter what area we're in, to help people understand what we specialise in. It's a service that we should all be providing. You're listening to The Locals on 89.0 Free FM. Welcome back. Here's part of my conversation with volcanologist Dr Janine Krupner. It's so easy to promote misinformation. I know a lot of it is around COVID and stuff like that. Have you seen the same sort of thing happen? Oh my goodness, yes. In all, in all caps, yes. Mm. Um, it's horrific to see the fear that happens around volcanoes, even when they're not doing anything. Mm. Uh, Yellowstone is a big one. Any volcano that has the word caldera attached to it, this new supervolcano term that's come up recently, uh, a volcano doesn't actually have to erupt to cause damage once rumours start, start flying around. Um, there was a crisis at the end of 2017, which is actually when I really got into crisis communication at Agung Volcano in Bali, Indonesia. And there were several months of activity below the surface, which was being monitored and communicated. But on the surface, the rumours about this volcano wiping out the island was flying around. Tourism was devastated. Locals who rely on that were having a really tough time, as well as the you know, all the people who evacuated. So it was this really awful situation of a bad situation being made so much worse because of people making statements that just weren't true at all. And those of us who are experts in these fields and really do want to help, we're so outnumbered. So outnumbered. There might be a few thousand volcanologists, but you get that many tabloids around the world, you know, that many tabloid stories around the world got every few days. So it's... It's really sad, and it's it hits me <laughs> in the heart every time I see this happening. In the last few days, I've been getting pleas, people begging for help in the States because of this volcano in the Canary Islands across the ocean. People from the UK, people from Europe, terrified. 
And I don't use that word lightly because that's another word thrown around in the media a lot. And don't get me wrong, I, I love working with media. There's a lot of really good people out there. But once you get these tabloids, it, it gets to be very, very dangerous. Uh, and how do you strike that balance when you're trying to reassure the public? Because the, the reality is, if you make the wrong call and say to people, it's okay to stay in your home, it's the volcano's burping, but it, it, she'll be right. Um, you know, the, there are lives at risk. How, how, how do you grapple with that? Luckily, that part's not my job. <laughs> That's the job of the Volcano Observatory. And what a Volcano Observatory is, is a team of volcanologists all specialising in different aspects of volcanoes and volcano monitoring, as well as an international effort. Um, there's support that goes into that too, and we're always learning off each other. So that's the call of the people who have all the information, and that's hordes of information. And to understand it, you need to be really an expert in that specific area. That's why it's, you need to be, we work together all the time. That's a critical part of it. So all I'm doing is looking at what they are saying, uh, talking to people, uh, other volcanologists, plus them in the background, and finding ways to help people to understand what the information means and when it's people near the volcano, what that information means for them. So it's not my call. I'm not working at an observatory, but there's just, you know, a lot of observatories are understaffed, like most important fields, and don't have the time to answer dozens, if not hundreds, sometimes thousands of media questions, as well as keep up with social media. So it takes a real global effort to help people get the right information during these events. How can we get rid of that mess and disinformation? Oh, that's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, I don't think we can. Mm. I think we have to, those of us who are experts in our field, as well as other experts, like um, I work in the background a lot with meteorologists because they're often the scientists on television who is talking to people about these sort of things. So I'm working with them so that they can give the right messaging. I'm also working with media. There are so many good uh, science writers out there with really good um, like National Geographic organizations like that who work really hard to get this right. So we can't get rid of it as far as, I mean, if you look at um, so Harry and Megan who have been trying to take down some of the UK tabloids, it's, it's not... It doesn't seem to be possible right now, but we need to work together and we need to, you know, earn the trust of our global communities online and in person so that they know who we are. They know that, yes, we are absolutely well-meaning. We've got to earn that trust and keep earning that trust and work with them so that everyone is sharing the right information. Everyone knows where to go for the right information. You know, there's misinformation that's infecting people, it's, it's shaping their lives to their detriment, it's putting a whole heap of pressure on you and your colleagues and, you know, across a whole heap of other scientific fields, they're, they're facing the same type of thing. How, how are you managing with all of that on your shoulders? Uh, oh, that's, that's a tough question. Uh, honestly, I'm 12 months into recovering from severe debilitating burnout. I, um, the communication part that I do is not part of my job. It never has been. It's on top of it. So when there's a crisis, um, sometimes I need to take time off work to address it. And the exhaustion, the burnout has been crushing at times. 
but that's when you know we have a chance to grow. We have a chance to learn how to better balance what we're doing, um, prioritize a little bit better, but keep addressing why am I doing this? And at the end of the day, that's to help people because I've seen a lot of very, very scared people. And if I can just help a handful during these events, that's all worth it. And is there enough support around you to, to effectively recover and recharge? Uh, I'm, I'm very lucky. Uh, I have incredible friends and colleagues around the world. And we're all connected online, so it doesn't matter where you are. Um, I also have friends across time zones, which is fantastic as well. Uh, my my colleagues at the Smithsonian have been absolutely incredible. I had to take months off work to recover from the burnout. And my family as well have been amazing. So I've had incredible support, non-stop support um, from people I know, friends, family, and also people I don't know have been very supportive. So no, it's, it's as much as the world can look like a really awful place, there's a lot of really good people out there just willing to help and lend a hand and support. What, what comes next for Dr. Krebner? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I've been working remotely since March 2020, so at this point, that's what, is that 18 months? <laughs> and I'm also an extrovert, so I need to be around people constantly, so yeah. I have not been enjoying working at home, although my <laughs> two cats have been wonderful support. Perfect. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I wasn't planning on moving home. Um, I moved home because of the situation in the States, and I'm very grateful that I did. But I don't know. Yeah. I will find a way to continue to work and help people and learn and do better and be better. And someone down the track will hopefully pay me to do that. <laughs> I feel yeah. I feel yeah. I love history, and as a result, I sort of think more in, in hundreds and thousands of years. Do you look at the world and think, oh, that's only four million years old or whatever yeah. it is? You know, <laughs> like, do, is, do you have a slightly warped perspective because you're, you're thinking in the tens or twenties of millions of years or billions, I suppose, at times? Yeah, it's interesting. Part of being a volcanologist is learning how to think in different timescales and in 3D mm. and in 3D below the surface where we can't yeah. see it. So I usually study volcanoes that erupted within a few decades, which is baby, that's the baby stuff. Um, some of the stuff I work on is still hot. <laughs> but over the course of the billions of years of the planet, you know, that's one of the first things you get trained as a volcanologist, or sorry, as an earth scientist, mm. is to think in these scales of billions to millions to hundreds of thousands to thousands of years. So to, for us to call a volcano active or potentially active, that means it's erupted in the last 12,000 years. Mm. So 12,000 years for us is recent. And then you have 40 to 50 ongoing eruptions at a, any given moment. And a lot of that isn't even preserved in the rock record because it's too small. So it's, yeah, it's, it depends on the context. Um, sometimes, yeah, oh, it's only a few millions of years old. And other times, oh gosh, that's a few decades. Or, wow, that's probably going to happen in the future. So, yeah, it's, it's really weird. And you've got to flip between those yeah. depending on the context. So when I was saying sort of, hundreds or thousands of years and you went like that in your mind were you thinking oh that's adorable yeah <laughs> you know it's uh one of the really good exercises we do we did in our first lab mm. my first year of university at Waikato is we have these long benches how much oh gosh they must have been about eight meters long mm. ten meters long maybe and there's a strip of paper of the you know width of toilet paper across the whole thing mm. 
and using that as a scale for the entire planet, so over 4 billion years, we are given a lot of different important points. So when bacteria first started to form, when we first started to get an atmosphere and all of these big major events for our planet, and then when people... We're right at the end. We are less than a centimetre at the end of that. So... But that, that's also kind of what makes us special. You know, yeah. life is beautiful, not because it lasts, mm. but because it is. Um, is there a, a, a question that you you wish you were asked more often or just asked at all, perhaps around volcanology? I say this in a curiosity frame of mind, not a sceptical frame of mind. Why does it matter? And the answer to that is because volcanoes impact hundreds of millions of people around the world and because we care about that. So why does it matter that we're out there doing this research, which to some might seem really frivolous, especially during a pandemic? Why does it matter that we have volcano observatories? Why does it matter enough to listen to us and to trust us? And we need to keep earning that. Trust shouldn't be given, it should be earned. It matters because we care. We dedicate our lives to working on these things. Because we're passionate about the volcanoes too, we of course get something out of it ourselves, otherwise we wouldn't be driven to work on such difficult problems. But it matters because we care. It impacts people, and it's important. Quick fire question, favourite volcano? Norway. Good choice, good choice. <laughs> um, are you concerned that in about 200 million years, when the tectonic plates stop moving, um, you're going to be finally out of a job? Oh, no, I would have evolved into a new way of working, because okay. that's what we do. And plus, I'm super old at that point, so <laughs> I'll have all the experience to know what to do next. Janine, you're timeless. <laughs> you're, you're, or become sort of Chris, some sort of crystalline entity. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh, nice. I like that. Yeah. Do you have a piece of advice for your younger self? You're way stronger than you know. And I say that because, you know, it's it's easy to look at someone who has the PhD, someone who's in the news, someone who's on the camera, and think that they have all of this confidence and that they're just brilliant and that all all of this crazy stuff we think about other people. But it's hard. It is, it's hard moving overseas. It's hard doing a PhD. It's hard going on camera when you're trying not to cry talking about people who have just been killed during an eruption. Um, and we all have our own things. Like, I have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I'm in pain almost all the time. And all of this stuff makes you stronger as you go. And the person you are at any given moment is not as strong as the person you're going to be when you come up against the next problem. You're always stronger than you think, and then you're always getting stronger beyond that. So just go for it. It's going to be okay. Thanks, Janine. It was great to chat and certainly opened my eyes up to the subject. And you can get more of that insight at janinekrupner.weebly.com or on Twitter at Janine Krupner. That wraps up another show. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search The Locals. And I'll post those links on the Dan Armstrong Waipark and Country Facebook page. We'll be back next Monday with another conversation. But until next time, thanks for listening. Cheers. Haere
episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.